Let's stand. Let's open up our Bibles. That's not like a good thing to do. One of the best things to do, isn't it? Bring those Bibles and let's read them. Let's see what God has to say. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, He was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Dear Holy Father, we thank You for this Word, and as we look into it today, may it be a blessing on our hearts as we look into this great Gospel. We pray for the leading of Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. What happens when we die? I would say that would probably be one of the most important questions that anybody could ever ask in their lifetime. What happens when we die? That's the question of the ages, isn't it? People have different ideas. Some believe in soul sleep. Um, Some believe in termination. That's it. It's all over. Extinction. Others believe in reincarnation or recycling. The Greeks taught absorption where you would... uh, live here in the body and then your soul would leave and and absorb into some kind of something out there, nefarious, what have you, into the divine mind and you would lose yourself forever. You would not have a personality. You would be lost in that. Like a drop of water in the ocean as they speak. (laughs) You know, that's sad. All those versions are really uh, no hope if that's what it is. The Bible doesn't teach the loss of self. It doesn't teach the loss of self of anyone, believer or unbeliever. There will be an eternal existence. The soul is eternal. The body will be redone. Amen? (laughs) Praise the Lord. It will be much better than what we have. But it will be in an immortal fashion, never to die again. Now, that's the resurrection. That's the Christian's great hope. That's what it's about. That's the focus. Resurrection faith is uh, totally unique to any other religions. There's nothing like it anywhere else. The Buddhists don't claim it. When Buddha died, as a matter of fact, it was that utter passing away which nothing uh, remains. Uh, Then Mohammed of uh, Islam died in 632 A.D. 
Can you believe that? Religion goes on strong as it does today, stronger than ever. At Medina, you can go visit his tomb. And uh, people visit that annually. Uh, literally turns, uh, just tons of people, thousands of people come there to visit him. And they uh, have never claimed that he came out of the grave. They would never ever say that because that is uh, not true, first of all. But even if they're not found the truth, they still would not say that. Um, matter of fact, any religions that you look at and any religions who have founders, which they do, have never come up out of the grave. We don't see those claims. We don't see any facts. Uh, the Jews have never claimed that Moses came out of the grave. But the church continues to celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we had um, our resurrection celebration two weeks ago. And you can say, well, this is untimely. Too bad we couldn't have had this on that day. But we did kind of speak about the resurrection, didn't we? Kind of. Maybe more than kind of. We were, uh, actually took a Peter's sermon in Acts 1 and uh, talked about the resurrection there. Matter of fact, you can probably go through much of the Bible and see the resurrection there. It is all over the Bible. It's a center point. So in the book of 1 Corinthians now, we've seen, as we have advanced, can you believe we're already in chapter 15? And we've seen that Paul has been rebuking and correcting the Corinthian church basically for their sinful, selfish pride. And he has been hitting on that issue in different topics and forms and matters all the way through. And we see that sometimes they are very stinging corrections that he makes. And they have to be made to the the church. And uh, this is good for the church today. It is not irrelevant. It is relevant in uh, every facet we've looked at. But you know what? We've not really looked at a lot of doctrinal issues. Not that doctrine is not in there, but the high doctrine such as the resurrection, which is where we're going into today, we've seen a lot of practical things that Paul has talked about. And now he moves into the great summit of the doctrine of the resurrection, one of the highest doctrines in all of Christianity and the Bible, one of the greatest doctrines ever in anything. And what you do when you look at this, when you get to the summit, you take a deep breath, you look out all across where uh, this is all about, and, and you take a big sigh. What a grand view this is when you think of the resurrection. And we believe it. It gives you great hope. You have the great hope that you will be resurrected. Uh, all the other religions really offer no hope Uh, not what we offer anyway, what a dark outlook it would be for most of those things, and whether it be reincarnation or just this is it, or absorption. I don't even know who you are, whatever that is. Wow. Uh, You know, you you think of that, you think, boy, that would be just useless. Wouldn't life be useless if we didn't have a resurrection? It'd just be absolutely worthless, valueless. And so Paul is going to bring that forth in this chapter. Uh, The resurrection is a pinnacle for the Christian. It puts on display the mighty glory and power of our great God. When you think of Christ coming out of death, out of that grave, 
and coming forth with life and then offering it to us. It can send chills down your spine when you really think of what it did. You know, there is no single event ever in the history of mankind that can come anywhere close to this spectacular, awesome, splendorous display. Do you know what I mean? There is nothing... And you can think of all the different natural sites that people go to and they're great, God created. Uh, you can think of some of the things that have been man-made and wow, people ooh and all. But there's nothing like the resurrection. The course of human history was interrupted when this Jesus who we believe in came to earth as a man being God and He was incarnated. He came in the flesh. He interrupted humankind and all of history and He lived a perfect life, a perfect righteous life, and that's the kind of righteousness that He gives to us. And then He died so He could pay for our terrible sin. Death was defeated. And victory was accomplished. The death, burial, and resurrection. A supernatural occurrence can't think of any supernatural kind of movies, cartoons, whatever that can even come close to this. This actually happened though. This was in time and space and matter. It was something that people could actually wrap their minds around. They could because they experienced, they saw a risen man who had been dead. And uh he was the Son of God with power is proclaimed with that. No other religion in the world has that. Isn't it something that they're missing it? Think of all the people that are in the cults, all the ones that are in all the religions, the Eastern religions. We, of the few, and that's saying that the Christians are of the few, all across the world, have something that is so unique and it's so true. And it's the only truth. There is no other way into the presence of God except what Jesus made as He said He was the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Him. And a lot of people as Christians, with quotes I say that, because anybody that would say Jesus is uh, a little bit too narrow there, uh, or yeah, Jesus said that for some people, but it's for all, all will get in. Uh, they have called Jesus a liar. And I cannot call them a Christian if they say there are other ways too. Do you know what I mean? I'll just be narrow as, as Jesus is, as He said. There's no other way. Uh, it's Christ alone. And uh, so He rose from the dead so that we could enter into that way. Our belief in the resurrection is what we are banking our whole lives on. If you have ever put something out on something thinking, hey, this is really real and you're 99% sure, you still you know there's a chance that, hey, I could be wrong. But we're 100% sure of this resurrection. And it's been verified in what Christ did and historically and then what that means for us as we are the fruits that are to come. Uh, you can imagine a 50-50 chance rolling the dice. That's not too good. But we have absolute truth. Um, but we're banking our whole lives on it. What if we're wrong? Well, we're all fools to be here today. We could be home, laying in bed, reading the newspapers, or 
whatever you want to do out in the garden or what have you, and uh, just be goofing off. Now, not that this is not enjoyable and it's not uh, something that we uh, look forward to. We It is. But if there was nothing outside of this and this was it, I'd be saying lies. You guys would be believing lies and saying lies too and it would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? So we're banking everything on this resurrection event because it didn't happen. Then uh, we are to be pitied. Most to be pitied. Paul said that. It was a resurrection that gave birth to the very fellowship of the saints which became the church. It's the very cornerstone that made people believers whenever the resurrection was preached. That made people aware of their sin because this man, God, made claims and He backed it up. If this is really true, I'm going to follow Him. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? As people were being convinced. What can I do, Peter? I believe your sermon. You use the Old Testament. <laughs> you use the Bible. At the time, that's all it was. It was the Bible, right? You use the Pentateuch. You use the Torah. Well, Christ would have been a liar. There was no resurrection. He would not have been deity. There would have been no salvation for any of us. There would be no eternal life. There would be no consequences of death. Or think of the consequences of death. No hope. So this is why the resurrection, ever since it happened, during uh, the very time that Christ resurrected, that's why it has tried to be blasted down. Because if it's not attacked, then it destroys everything else. They try to attack the resurrection because they know that that is the most visible, the most proof of Christianity that there is. That was the main point as death had happened. Um, if they can destroy the resurrection, which they try to do, Christianity would fall immediately. If they could actually do it. They've been trying it for 2,000 years and Christianity has not been destroyed yet. You know what? I think it's a good, and I'm going to put this in quotes, bet <laughs> to take. And it's not a gamble. Because this, this is truth. This is absolute truth. Um, the destiny of man hinges upon this. Everybody who's ever been born in the history of all of mankind has to wrestle with this issue. This one who interrupted the history of mankind and showed that He was God and you were to believe on Him. The destiny of man is all hinging on the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Christ. He indeed is God. He claimed it. He backed it up. It's true. Everybody is responsible now in history, all throughout history, for what this man did. This man God. Now, how does this chapter 15 fit in with the rest of 1 Corinthians? How do we fit this in? He's been rebuking and correcting them for 14 chapters. And now he gets into chapter 15 and you're not going to say, Dennis... You're not really going to say he's rebuking them on this, are you? Yes and no. Um, it's a little bit different. 
but they needed to understand some things that were very important. It's not that they're denying the resurrection here because if they were denying the resurrection, then they're not Christians. You cannot be a Christian and say, yeah, but I don't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> After all of what we just talked about, when we look at this chapter here, but how does this I mean, what's the problem? Well, it's not because they don't believe in it. They needed to know that they too would resurrect. They know about Christ raising from the dead. And Paul is telling, hey, you don't have any problems there about the resurrection of Christ. I know that. But why are you giving up on your own resurrection? Or why are you having a little problem with that? That's the issue of this chapter, and you'll see that as this chapter develops. And we're going to take probably a few weeks on this chapter to, to see it, because it is a high doctrine. We all know about it. We believe it. It's not that I'm trying to convince and give you proofs of the resurrection. That's not the, the deal. We already, uh, we've been proven it. We know that. But we can see in, in our own lives what that resurrection means. It's, it's continual hope. But then also, we need to tell people about this resurrection. Or if somebody comes up to you and says, I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in Jesus. And then he can say, yeah, but what do you do when one claims to be God and then he rose from the dead? Do you know of anybody that's done that? Question them with that. Get right at the heart of the resurrection. That's what it's about. And they can say, well, that's just in the Bible. Well, that's the best place that we can find that at. It's all over the place. It's there. If you want to go to other historical sources, okay, we can go there, but this is much better. But I can tell you historically, yeah, that's been proven too. You've got to deal with it. What are you going to do with it? So that, that's a good where, uh, place to uh, go with people on that. Uh, many of the problems um, they had brought from the world into the church, right? We've seen all of that. They were bringing their philosophies and suing each other and all the great knowledge that they had on and on and on. They were bringing that in from the outside and still being Christians and trying to make it mesh in with Christianity. And I think that's probably what's been the problem with the church all for 2,000 years. It constantly has to battle with the world, world of flesh and the devil, brings things in and kind of commingles. During the Dark Ages, there was a lot of paganism that was in, in the church. And, uh, of course, that caused a reformation. But it, right there in the very early church, a uh, Corinthian church, we, we have seen some of those things that came in. They just sucked it right up. And now, I'll, I'm taking a long time for uh, an introduction. My, how long has this been? That's a long introduction. But this is an introduction to a great doctrine that we're going to still cover 11 verses. Now figure that one out. <laughs> and, and I see you out there, Penny, going, yeah, right. We're in. Greek philosophy. What did they teach? Okay, if we, if we handle on this, and this will take me about a minute to get through, and then we'll get into the first verse. We want to get into the Word of God, not, not my ideas here. Right? But this introduction should help. What were the Greeks thinking in their philosophy? Now, this is not in our Word, but it kind of is, because it has been talking about philosophy. Well, they believed in an afterlife. But the idea of their afterlife is that Okay, you live, you die. They had a philosophical dualism in their beliefs. Okay, and that was in the Greek thinking. These ones who become Christians, they, they had thought about that. And really they, they saw that spirit was good. 
Spiritual things are good. They, they, yeah, they believed in that. And really, physical things or matter really was evil. Later on, that develops into Gnosticism, which John, kind of in its very early format, was challenging in First John. Because they were denying that Jesus was the Christ. Because He came in flesh. That is a major doctrine that you cannot flip-flop on. I mean, you know, if you don't believe that Jesus is God who came to earth in the flesh and that was really Him, then you're not a Christian. And John just flat out says that. Well, in their dualism, spirit's good, evil or matter is evil. They believe that when you died, the soul went to immortality. And the body went into the grave and never to be resurrected again. That was it. You, you will not have a body anymore. Boom, you just go right into some kind of mesh of Godhood that's not you. You just kind of mix in with it. But there's some kind of uh, immortality of the soul there. Of course, we believe that, but much more than that. The Christians are believing uh, because... Um, they know that there is a body to be resurrected. If you look in verse 12, which we're not going to get in today, because I didn't schedule it for this, but now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? That's what's happening in the Corinthian church. And Paul has to correct them on a major doctrine. How come you're saying then that there's no resurrection. Now, these people believing in Jesus resurrected, but they're also saying, yeah, but... You know, in our Greek philosophy, it says that we won't have a resurrection body. We're not going to have that. That's going to be done with. And Paul says, no, no, no. Uh Uh-uh. And then he'll go on to bring that forth here. That's why. And that's what's happening, as you see in verse 12. How come some of you are saying there's no resurrection from the dead? Paul is instructing them on a tremendous error. And he gives us, listen to this, he gives us the best treatment of the resurrection, the best and the most doctrine in this chapter that we are ready to begin right now, right here in chapter 15. This is above all other teachings because you'll have verses here and there and smattered throughout the Old Testament, New Testament. It's always there. But Paul gives us a whole chapter of a tremendous doctrine. Uh, none better anyway. Now, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. And we're going to see that there are testimonies that are going to prove the very validity, how valid this is about the body after it dies. So, let's read verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and which you stand, but which you also are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. The first two verses are really bringing forth a great witness, a great testimony. It's the Corinthians themselves. You can say, well, they weren't around when Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, but their lives changed from pagan, uh, pagan people who worship pagan gods to now worshiping the true God. Their lives have changed despite some of the things that we've seen in Corinthians. They are changed people by God's grace. So he says, Moreover, brethren, 
And he calls them brethren. Isn't that a beautiful word to be saying? After all he's been saying, do you think he ought to call them brethren? Absolutely. I mean, he's been torching them, you know? He's really been roasting these guys because of some of the terrible beliefs and things that they were doing. And he says, brethren, he loves them. I declare to you the gospel. Now, he's not saying the gospel for the first time to them because he had been there. He already knew them. He introduced the gospel to them. What's the gospel? Good news. We have good news. UN Galizzo. What he did is he gospelized them. Because in the Greek, you have gospel there, which is euangelizo, it's, it's related to that, which I preached to you, which I gospelized to you, which I euangelizoed you. I preached you the gospel, which I gospeled you, gospelized you. That's kind of how it's set up. And so he's declaring it again. I preached to you this, I'm declaring it here again. You know what? The gospel is the heart of what this is all about, why we meet to worship God. Why we read God's Word and pray and worship Him. You know, that's what this fellowship, that's what it's all about. It's because of the gospel. Gospel is good news. And, and we get the outline of it in verses 3 through 5. Somebody wants to know the gospel in short form, go verses 3 through 5. But I do want to tell you, the gospel is more than just that. That's a good package, and that's exactly what it is. But the gospel is, I'm going to make this real simple a three letter word. Gospel is God. It's the whole story. Going all the way back before the foundation of the world about who God was, minus us, to all the way through the end of time and into the eternal state is the Gospel. It's the grace of Jesus Christ as we look upon it of what He has done for us as He died was buried and rose again. All that's according to the Scriptures that was prophesied long ago. Uh, the Gospel. Can you think of anything better? The old Gospel. You know what? The Gospel does not change. It cannot change. We don't need a new Gospel. The Gospel is right here. The old rugged cross, right? The cross is still the same. The burial is the same. The resurrection is all the same. This Word of God is the same. They received the fact when when Paul came in there talking to the Corinthians, you'll remember he said, I didn't come to you with cleverness of speech, that kind of thing. You know, I didn't come in there. I came in with fear and trembling. Was he afraid of them? No. He was afraid that if he didn't deliver the gospel correctly or bring it forth the way that he should, that he would be accountable to God. We are accountable to God for the gospel that he has given us. He came in there preaching the word, and you know what? Many of the Corinthians believed it. After he came from Athens, the capital city of philosophy, which was not too far away from Corinth, and he comes in there of people who are philosophers, but they were Corinthianized people, which were very sinful people. And he comes in, brings the gospel, people's lives are changed. Good news happens. They receive that fact. They received the fact that He rose again on the third day. That had to really blow them away. That had to stun them and they go, Oh my, if that's the fact, I want this. I want to follow Christ. So Paul reminds them that they had received that. Look what happens when you receive it. Look in John chapter 1, verse 12. He came, Jesus came to His own, His own people, His Jewish people. His own did not receive Him. As a whole, as a nation, they didn't receive Him well, you do when God comes to the earth. Well, you want to receive Him. 
But as many as received Him to them, He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Who were born, and look at this though, it was supernatural birth. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It wasn't my will that I was born again. Nor of the will of man, but of God. It was God's will, not my will. You say, well, yeah, I have free will to choose God. I received Him. Yes, you received Him, but why did you receive Him? You received Him because it was the will of God. Ephesians 1 said it was the purpose of God. It was for His glory. So, those ones who believe become what? Children of God. You remember in the confession that we read earlier that we are children of God, sons of God. We are children that are heirs. That comes out of Romans chapter 8. We are heirs with Jesus Christ. I mean, that really just elevates what God has done and you look at the position that He's put you in. Is that good news? We are children of God, folks. And Paul is reminding them this. You received this. I preached to you which you also received and in which you stand. You received the Gospel. You brought it in. He was reminding that. And he says, you're standing in it right now. He says, yeah, not only were you children of God, you still are. You are standing in that on what you said. You continue to stand on it. That's the tense of this setting here. They kept true to the faith. We just read 14 chapters of Corinthians and I find that hard to believe in my flesh. Grace of God. Uh, It's not our performance that keeps us saved. It's the grace of God that keeps us saved. They say, well, man, we can go out and sin all we want. And Romans 6 says, no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that this grace extends all the way to that point. But, I mean, it's, it's lavished upon us, but if you're a true believer, you don't want to sin. That's the issue. Do you still sin? Yeah. And that's why I'm sure many changed their thinking and their thoughts when Paul lashed out on them through the 14 chapters of Corinthians. And now he says, hey, you receive the Gospel. You're believers. You're children of God. And you're standing in it. They kept to the faith. Even the sin. They prove their faith by enduring. If you're a true Christian, you must endure. And that sounds like works, doesn't it? You can't do anything to get your salvation. Can you do anything to keep it? Or lose it? No. Because you stand in it. He's the one who has done the work. But we want to be obedient, but you prove by your deeds. He has given you works to do and that will prove that you are a Christian. Because of their commitment to the truth. Are you committed to the truth? If you're committed to the truth, then you're standing on that. They were saved and they were able to continue in the faith. Look in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Now, let's see. Now I praise you, brethren, there's that word brethren, that you remember me in all things, and look at this, and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now the traditions there is not some unwritten things like we think of the Catholic Church that would say traditions there. 
It is the Word of God that he's talking about because they didn't have the completed Word of God. But all the things that he had taught them. So traditions is not some kind of man-made things that are lost that we don't know what they are or where they are. Uh, it's just things that are handed down. It's the truth that he had given me, given them. And so he says, in all things, keep those. Keep the Word of God. Uh, Jesus says in John 8.31, he says the same thing. John 8... John 8. Jesus says this to the Jews who believed Him. Now, the people are believing in what He's done and the miracles and such. He says, if you abide in My Word, if you hupo minnow, right? To remain under. That Word stays in there so much. If you abide, if you stay, if you stick around like blue in My Word, if you stay in My Word, You are my disciples indeed. You are my learners. If you are really in this, then it will show that you are true. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Do you guys feel free this morning? Why are you you free? Because of the truth. He set you free. He set you free from the sin and bondage that you were in. You are now uh, set free. It's that truth that did it. Look in... um, How about the ones who hold fast or don't hold fast? The ones who hold fast are the ones that hold to the truth. Jesus says that. Paul has said that. Um, The ones who don't hold to it, you have the wheat and the tares. In Matthew 13, you have uh, the parables that are put forth. The wheat is the truth and the tares are the weeds, but they look like the, the regular wheat that's coming up and sometimes you can't tell the difference. But he says, no, 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 just leave them there. Don't tear them out because you might affect the ones that are true. And so they grow up right with them. And then as it gets to the, uh, the end, I guess you could say, one can see who is, what's true and what's not. Uh, that's the idea of the parables. If we look in John's, uh, Matthew 7, 22 and 23, everybody is probably familiar with this one. After he has done the Sermon on the Mount, or right near the end of it, uh, it's almost like an invitation he's moving to. But he says in um, 21, Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, familiar with this passage, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, not, you know, okay, anybody who says this shall enter the kingdom of, of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So not everybody's going to get in there. It's only going to be who? There's two kinds. One who looks like that, and they're going to say the right things, but they're really not true. But it's the one who does the will of his Father in heaven. Many will say to me, Look at that. Here's what they say. These are the if you sayers. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, they call Him Lord. Have we not prophesied in Your name, cast out demons in Your name, done many wonders in Your name? Hey, look at what we've done. Look at our works. You know, We surely are Your believers. And He says, I'll declare to them, I never knew You. I did not have a relationship with You, an intimate relationship. It was never there. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Get out of here. I never knew you. That is the one he's talking about. Those are the ones who do not remain or hoopalmeno. They don't stick around. They say they do things, but they have never really changed in the first place. So that is the one that uh, does not endure. Look in verse 24. Therefore, who hears these sayings of mine does them, I will liken him to a wise man. The ones who really hears this and they do them, Paul is, I mean, uh, Jesus is saying, 
You hear the word of God and then you also do it. James said something just like that, didn't he? Be ye doers of the word. Uh, here's a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew. Be on that house, it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, these are the people that hear it, but don't do, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew. Beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. You see... Jesus is pointing out two different kinds of people. They both are saying they believe in Christ, but one is true, one is not. The one who is true is the one who is abiding in His Word, sticks around. He is there. He's in that. The Word of God is what's important to Him. And so Jesus showed that. Paul says it many times throughout the Scriptures. Paul believed in the security of the believer. He taught in Romans 8 that if you are predestined, then you will be called. And the ones who will uh, that are called will be justified. And of course, all the ones who are justified, that are declared right, will be glorified. That's a guarantee. And then from there on, he ends the rest of the chapter showing that there can be nothing that can separate his people from him uh, because of all the love of Christ. So it's uh, something that he has done. Um, on the other hand, there is a sense of perseverance. And you have Scriptures in the Hebrews, which sounds so contradictory. You can say, yeah, yeah, but look at these people. And, and so is Jesus and the Bible speaking two different things? You can have salvation and it's eternal life, which means how long? Eternal. And at the same time, guess what? If you don't keep doing what you're supposed to be doing, then you know what? I'm going to send you to hell. And he's just saying two things that, that are totally opposite. What do we do with those passages? We have to deal with them or the Bible's lying, Right? The Bible is just flat out lying. And that's why some people say, I can't believe in the Bible because it's so contradictory. The Bible never contradicts itself. The only problem is we have finite minds. We are fallen people. We are sinful people and we don't, and we have not arrived yet. We still have to study hard, read hard, and see where these conflicts really come into where the truth is about. If you're really a Christian, you will continue to be a Christian. If one professes to be a believer, but you don't continue in that faith, then you show that salvation was never genuine. Does that make sense? And that's why a lot of people really have trouble with the terms once saved, always saved. And I don't like to use that because it's misunderstood today. It really does mean that. If you, if you are saved, then you will be saved. The only trouble is, is that... It, it it almost means to some people, well, that means you can, you can just sin, you can call Satan your God, and it doesn't matter what you do anymore because you're saved. And we're not saying that. We believe in Lordship salvation in the sense that Jesus is Lord of your life. And because that He works the works in you, you will work those out. Will you be disobedient? Yeah, you can be disobedient. I will tell you, though, you have a father who disciplines his children. And he will make sure that they get back on the road. Some hang out there a little longer than others, but I will tell you, he will always bring the crook, uh, the, what the shepherd uses, and bring them right back and put them on the path. Uh, or he'll take them out, you know. Some sick, some die, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11. But true Christians will give evidence. All Christians have fruit. But the ones who really are not true, it never really takes. They might come to church more often. They might say all the right things. They might be the most kindest and loving people ever that you've ever met. But you find out that their faith really isn't true eventually. They may not. 
faith is, uh, but that kind of faith is really not faith. It's empty, it's worthless, it's useless. Uh, if there's no commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that's the kind of salvation that we're talking about. We're talking about the salvation uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Great text. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a works, lest anyone should boast. So we don't get it, and we don't keep it that way, but look in verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And when were those planned? God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Everybody has their own gifts and their own work and the fruit that He has given them to do and that's prepared before the foundation of the world so that you could glorify Him and that He would be honored as He works in you. And so that's, again, a work of God. We're totally transformed and these people are still standing as believers. They're still standing. Paul says, you're holding fast to this. This is the grace of God. Remember the Corinthian people? You're already a resurrection believers. You're standing. They're in a hostile society. They live in a pagan city. They live in what could may have been the most immoral city in the world at that time. They've been changed. You were these kind of people. In Corinthians chapter 6, I think it says. You were immoral and covetous and, and you were idolatrous and all those things. Homosexuals. That's the kind of lifestyle they live there. He says, you're not anymore. If you do carry on that lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're, you're, you're professing to be a Christian and you're still practicing homosexuality and not convicted by it? Well, the Bible tells me that if you continue that lifestyle, you're not a Christian. That's just what... Paul says. That's what the Bible says. But they were standing as believers in a hostile society. And they had been depraved. And now they're totally transformed. And they're proving that the salvation is genuine. And that's what Paul is saying in the verses 1 and 2. Does this make sense? Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved... I'm going to tell you right now, Paul saying, you're saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you. Unless you believe in vain. If you're not holding fast and you don't have that word and you don't care about the word of God, then you really need to examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. First Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse five. So there were people that weren't believers there too, and he knew that. You better examine yourselves. They're standing in this word of God. If you're really standing in it's really true. It's really genuine. Okay, who is the witness? Who has the great testimony to start off with? The Corinthians. Change lives. Transform lives. Now the next testimony, we're going to call up to the witness stand. It's the Scriptures. That's a good place to go with, isn't it? The Scriptures are a great testimony. The New Testament is seen... And it brings out the full light of some of the things that had been said long before the New Testament was ever written. The Old Testament had been talking about resurrection. It talked about the suffering of Christ and His death and His burial and His resurrection. And he said, that was in the Old Testament? Kind of stretching this a little bit, aren't we? I haven't seen that. Oh yeah. 
That's, that's what they preached from whenever they gave the Gospel. In, in starting in Jerusalem, Peter did that. Paul preached from it. John preached that way. Um, it takes the prophecies of Christ and then gives the completion of it, shows in the New Testament that, hey, this happened. Um, it's a great witness. So, Paul again says, I delivered to you. Verse 3, he's talked about gospel, good news. For I delivered to you. And look at this. First of all, here's the most important thing that I gave you. This is supreme. First of all, which I received. What you received, what I delivered, you received. And I want to tell you how supreme that is. I also received it. So I received that. You know what? Who did he receive it from? Did he receive it from Peter? No. Oh, he surely must have gotten it from the Apostle John then, right? No. Matthew? No. He didn't receive it from any apostles. You remember the, the life that Paul had before? He was a rabbi. He received something that he wasn't expecting to receive. He was killing Christians, persecuting Christians. He was behind this. He was leading people into stoning people. And yet, he's writing this. I want you to look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Right after First and Second Corinthians. Turn to Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. But I make known to you, brethren, that the Gospel... Oh, there's that word, right? The Gospel. We already talked about that. Which was preached by me is not according to man. Okay, This was not made up. Somebody just came along just threw some things together and says, hey, we've got a new religion. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. I didn't go to any seminaries for this. But it came through the revelation of Christ Jesus. This is miraculous. He received the Gospel directly from the person of Jesus Christ. He stood right before Him. That doesn't happen with us. We get the Gospel by somebody bringing it to us, reading the Word, which is just as good, but Paul said, hey, I didn't get it from the apostles. I didn't get it from any, any man. This was delivered directly to me. Paul, in Galatians, has to tell them he is an apostle. He had quite the gift. He's just a man. But it was delivered to him and he received it directly from the Lord. So came right out uh, from uh, Christ Himself. A revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, and here we have the heart of the Gospel, folks. Here it is. It's right here. I received this. Here's what I was given to give to you. Which is what you have to give to others. Which is what we have to give to others. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Scripture had told them that this was going to happen. It happened. The apostles reflected on that and said, oh my, this is what was foretold all through the Bible. How did we miss it? 
You know, they had uh, several weeks of Jesus teaching them after He arose from the dead. And then they had ten days in the upper room to start reflecting on those passages and everything that He taught them. And let me tell you, they got it real good. And it's sticking now. (laughs) They couldn't believe it before, but now they do. Um, Look in Luke 24, 25 through 27. You have the Emmaus disciples on the day of Jesus' resurrection. And these are followers of the Lord. They aren't necessarily the apostles. They're walking with Him. They don't recognize that He's Jesus. This is one of the most beautiful stories of the Bible. I love this. Oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You're so slow to believe in what the prophets said. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? Isn't He supposed to suffer first? Don't you know about that? They go, no. Suffer? What are you talking about? Remember Peter? Suffer and die. Oh, no, Lord. Well, these Emmaus disciples, same thing. And beginning at Moses, that's a pretty good place to start. What's that? Well, that's the Pentateuch which is the Torah, which is the law, which is the book of Moses, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They start, he started right there to them. He started explaining. Don't you remember? Okay, look at this. He expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He expounded. He explained. I think He did some expository work there in a sense. Yeah, that's what that means. He explained the Word of God. He says, okay, he read it to them. It's almost like he read it. Don't you remember this passage? I don't think he's carrying the scrolls and they got down on the floor or on the path as they were reading. He said, hey, no, look at this. It's right here. But he's saying, and, and he's bringing to light to them. And it's like, oh, wow. How have we ever missed that? And it's all, the light just turned on and uh, man, their heart was just burning because of what he just brought within them. Um, what were some of those passages? Um, matter of fact, Jesus even said, Hey, you're seeking for a sign? Well, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah went into the fish, not on his own accord, and he was swallowed up, and then he was brought forth. That was a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection uh, being raised again on the third day, as Jesus said. And uh, Jesus even said that. He had said many times, uh, hey, they're going to kill me in Jerusalem, but I will rise again. He had been telling them that. They didn't get it. Uh, Psalm 16, we explained that a couple of weeks ago in our resurrection message. Uh, that's the psalm um, that Peter used much in that sermon as he introduced the Gospel to people. You can go to Genesis 22. You can read about Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is put up on the sacrifice block, the altar, and he is being ready to be slain, to be sacrificed. And all of a sudden, in the thicket was a ram, and then God said, that's the one we're going to use. You don't have to kill Isaac. As a picture, again, of that there would be a resurrection. Did you know Abraham was willing to kill him? Why? He hasn't seen a resurrection, but I'll tell you what, he, whatever God, I'm, I'm willing to do this because I know He's going to come back to life because your promises said that my seed will go through Him, so okay, I'll do it. Do you think He believed in a resurrection? Yes, He did. He really believed it. He didn't have what we have to look at, but He believed that. Man, that's great faith. Well, that's the kind of faith that God had given Him. Um, you can go to Isaiah 53. Let's go to Isaiah 53. 
I can go on and on with all these passages. Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, one of the richest in all the Bible. It's just one of my most favorite chapters. You have the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He's despised and uh, nobody esteems him. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded. Why? For our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. By His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So He took our iniquity, put it on Him at the cross, took His righteousness and put it on us and you've got the great exchange. That's what it's about. We had His righteousness put on us. He took His righteousness put on us as He took our sin. Uh, much here, so rich. Look in verse 9. And they made His grave with the wicked. He died with the thieves, but with the rich at His death. And you have um, a, a, a place where He was buried that where only the rich would have, the tombs. And then you have... Um, Nicodemus being seen there, who was a rich person all too. He had done no violence and no deceit. He's not. Verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Look at this. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. We have death. We have burial dealing with the tomb. But his days will be prolonged, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. This is resurrection. Death, burial, resurrection. You have the gospel in Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years plus before Jesus Christ ever was here in in the flesh. That's pretty detailed, isn't it? Gospel message. God was satisfied in what He did. Scriptures, the Scriptures. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. This is the last Old Testament passage I'm going to look at. There's so many. We could go on and on and we could make a whole message out of it. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, the bodies. This is not soul sleep, but it's bodies sleeping in the dust of the earth. The, the ones who have died, the resurrected, or they're going to be resurrected sometimes, shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. For those who are wise and shine like the brightness of the firmament, those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There will be a resurrection for everybody. But the resurrection of the eternal life of Jesus Christ is what's about. So, does the Old Testament speak of the resurrection as quick as I went through there? I went like through a, like a jet plane on that, sorry. Like a rocket. But uh, there's nothing new here as they preach this. The living church testifies to the resurrection and early in the church they did that. They were committed to the resurrection. Aren't you glad that you are committed to the resurrection? You hold true to that. You're not ashamed to say it to anybody, are you? That's what it's about. I believe in a resurrected man. A man God. Well, what's the third witness? A third testimony. Well, we see it in 5 through 7. That he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, I'll stop there. Okay, eyewitnesses. 
you have to have eyewitnesses in a court case or you can't have a case, can you? It's got to be witnesses. In the law it said two or three. At least two. The evidence is overwhelming. We have more than two or three. We have a number of people that saw Christ after the resurrection. Well, the Corinthians are a testimony. The Scriptures are a testimony. But how about people's eyes and ears? Peter was the first one mentioned here. He's called Cephas. Here's the rock. Cephas was reported by the Emmaus disciples that he had seen the risen Lord. That's what they said in Luke 24:34. If you want to look that up, as they're speaking, of Je- or, uh, they had spoken to Jesus and they saw that he was resurrected as he finally showed who he was, and then boom, he vanished. And they're back, going back to Jerusalem, and they're saying, Peter saw this. Peter saw the resurrection. Did you know that? Yeah. Why? Would Jesus appear to Peter so quickly? I don't know the exact time period when He did, but it was definitely on that first day of the resurrection. And it was before that the rest of the apostles saw Him that night of that first day. Do you remember what Peter did? Do you remember him denying the Lord three times? Do you remember him saying, Oh Lord, you don't have to die. What are you speaking about? You don't have to die at all. That's not going to happen to you. You know, we've got the kingdom here to come. And what did Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Quite a rebuke. And here, Peter even cursed, denied the Lord. I think that He appears to him so early because Peter needed this. Because he wept as soon as he found out that he had denied the Lord the third time. This is exactly what Jesus said. He had been sifted like wheat, hadn't He? Jesus said it's going to happen. Satan is going to sift you like wheat. He did. And then Jesus shows him His resurrection body. What would you think if you saw your rabbi show himself after he died? The grace of God is on display. I think we see forgiveness. Do you know what? There have been times when we have sinned where we knew that we just offended the holiness of God. And you know what? Jesus is there. And we recognize that His forgiveness is always there as we confess our sin to Him. Aren't you really glad of that? He is always there. That's how practical this is. How often do we fail like Peter? Can anybody here ever identify with Peter? (laughs) Can anybody do that? Yeah, we do it. You know what? Jesus went right to him and met with him in a private meeting. After the resurrection and ascension, Peter was the one with the most clout in the early days of the church. Who spoke the first sermon in Acts chapter 2? Peter. Those first sermons. He had the impact. Was he a credible witness? You bet. Hey, listen, he had been hiding out. Why would you go around telling everybody after you've been hiding that, hey, you, believe, believe it or not, he rose from the dead. No way you'll get yourself shot or crucified, Right? You don't tell that unless you know it's really for real. And all of a sudden, you say it right there in Jerusalem. He had been hiding, but he is convinced now. 
got so many passes to go to, but I'm sorry I um, ran out of time. Uh, you could look at John 20:19. You could look at Luke 24:36. You could look at Acts 1:22, where he's preaching that. Pretty good eyewitness. What's another one? 500. 500. 500. All 500 are in the courtroom. Somehow you jam them all. Now they're, they're even stacked outside. They're lining up. And the judge is sitting there and then says, okay, one by one, I want you all to come up here and give me a witness uh, testimony here. The 12 um, is uh, first even before the 500 though. The 12 really are is a title for the team. You think of a team that has a name, the 12. Well, the 12 is not really the 12 because one has abandoned them. Uh, Judas. Judas uh, committed suicide. And even at the, uh, at the upper room that night, Thomas wasn't even there. So there were only 10 of them, really. But then... Thomas comes back into the fold. He sees it the next week. And there's 11. The 12 is still what that's called. So uh, it doesn't stumble anybody up. When, he's, when he says the 12, he's talking about the, the, uh, those apostles. Uh, some of you might have that in your, your translation, right? Then by the 12. Uh, the 500 brethren. Um, there was a second um, line of evidence here. Uh, this is way more than evidence and anybody needs. Masses of people in Galilee who witnessed the preaching of Jesus. They saw Him. They had seen Him before. You have apostles that had seen Him. To be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Lord. Him resurrected. This is overwhelming. You know, people who are not believers should really investigate the truth out. One of the first places I'd go to were to these manuscripts and really see this. At that time, he's saying, hey, listen, you can go to the apostles. Uh, they're, they're living. Go to them and, and, and let them tell you. Um, or, or, you know, go to Peter. Or there's 500 out there that's fine. And, uh, yeah, some of them are dead. Most of them are still alive even today as, as Paul had written this to the Corinthians. You, could, you can get this verified. How about James? Well, this could be James of Alphaeus, uh, another one of the James. I tend to think, as many uh, commentators say, this is probably James, the half-brother of the Lord, and he was an eyewitness. Well, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. James, you see, didn't believe in the Lord. If you look in, um, I think it is John chapter 7, verse 5, his brothers did not believe in him whenever he went to Jerusalem. And they made fun of him. And James was one of those. Verse 3, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. Okay. Right there we see that you know they're challenging him. Hey, you go ahead. If this is really true, uh, hey, do it. You know, And then we'll believe it too. Um, in verse 5, we see that. For even his brothers did not believe in him. They'd seen him grow up. They didn't believe in him until the resurrection. James. And in Acts 15, you'll see him at the first church council and he's presiding over it. James, the unbeliever, till the resurrection. I believe that could be the biggest amount of evidence that you'd ever want to have, isn't it? Somebody came back from the dead. Now the judge says, 
He calls all the 500 up and the apostles. Now I call to the stand Paul. <laughs> Paul. Okay, we've seen Peter. We've seen, we've seen the apostles. These guys kind of had failed. Paul. Saul. Christian killer. Jesus had told him, asked him, Why do you persecute me? Acts chapter 9. How did he persecute him? By persecuting the church. That's how you persecute Christ. The very ones that later became his, or actually he becomes a brother too, to the ones that he had had ordered stoned. Wonder how that meeting would be as you see brothers and sisters that you were responsible for killing. As he, he never forgot it. And that's why he says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle. I shouldn't be called an apostle. I'm the least. I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Oh, we could, oh this is a sermon right here. I really debated on just keeping this as a message for next week. God's grace. Paul might be just saying, Hey, I'm nothing more than abortion. As you see in uh, verse 8, one born out of due time. Uh, that Greek word m- means a premature birth or uh, abortion or miscarriage. Um, they might have even been calling Paul the dead fetus, the abortion. In relation to the apostles, he was born too late. He didn't come in at the same time they did. It was later as being an apostle. He's just designating himself as the worst. Uh, he's the discard of humanity. He killed them. And the Christians, the Jewish Christians and, and such, they didn't want to be around him. They didn't believe that this was really a true conversion on him at first. The abortion, some of them. A term of derision, as he says, one untimely born. Despite and, uh, the hatred, people hated him so much for this gospel of grace as he delivered to the Jewish people who were not Christians that went against the system of the law and he preached grace. I am the least. I'm not fit to be an apostle. I persecuted the church. He never forgot. All in the name of God. You look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12-17, through 17, he says the same thing. I am, by, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am not fit to be this. But this is what God has called me to do. That's just like God, isn't He? To take the worst of the sinners and bring them up and put them in a position like that. The sovereign grace of God. My, the the heart of the Gospel. Do you think Paul was looking to be a Christian? No. This shows the sovereign grace of God. I, I can't think of anything better, and there are many of them that equal this, though, too, all throughout Scripture. Paul was not looking for Christ. None look for God unless God draws him. We see sovereign grace written all over this mighty salvation act here. God started the work in him and kept doing the work in him. This grace salvation is the same way God works for everybody who becomes a Christian. Nobody looks for God on their own. Romans 3 says that. All hate God. There is nothing good in them and about them they have nothing there to offer God. John six forty four. Jesus said this Himself. 
Verse 38, all the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. There's the resurrection for us. No one can come unless He draws. That's the grace of God. How do you how do you turn a guy that's going to kill Christians into the greatest apostle that ever lived who's the least of the apostles? How do you take somebody who's going to do everything he can to destroy the church? The greatest proponent of the church that ever lived in the way that he came out or as much as anybody, there's only one thing that can do it. He saw the living Christ. And that was all by the grace of God. Jesus came there. Not because Paul was so intellectual, because he was, and he was so smart, and he was so good, because there was nobody that was better than Paul doing all those works. Let me tell you something. None of those counted. And he said later in Philippians 2, it was all rubbish. It's trash. Everything that I have here is absolutely nothing because I want to know Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection. It's all by grace. There is the evidence. The Apostle Paul, what a great witness who had a tremendous testimony of his life just changing drastically. God's grace of salvation. You know what? Same thing happened to every one of us. Maybe not in such a dramatic way, but I will tell you that's what happened. The same thing happened to him, happened to us. Uh, There was a redirection of energy. We put our energy someplace different now than we used to, don't we? That's what the Gospel did to Paul. That's what the Gospel does for us. And you know what? The resurrection changes people's lives. You guys have experienced it. Father, we praise You for Your great Gospel, Your message, the work that You did. All we can just do is just stand by and say it's all by the grace of God like Paul said. All Your grace. Nothing else but Your grace. Thank You for granting us the faith, the repentance. You regenerated us and made us to start being conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. One day we'll see Him as He is because we will have resurrected bodies. What a promise it is. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.